Father, we pray that as you, we come to your word now and sit under it as your people, that through these words you would teach us to number our days, that we would have wise hearts that treasure that which is truly important and significant rather than that which is temporary and fading. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Money, money, money must be funny in the rich man's world. Money, money, money always sunny in the rich man's world. All the things I could do if I had a little money. It's a rich man's world. Our own society here in Malaysia certainly stays in tune with that at a hit very often and the message it's promoting. Uh, here in Malaysia, I think we're one of the only countries where the government has actually set a target for the number of shopping malls to be built by the year 2020. And here in KL, we see the acquisition of wealth as the thing that makes life worth living so often. It's a rich man's world. It's believed if you're rich, then you are secure. If you're rich, then you are popular. If you're rich, then you are out of harm's way. Money, 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 always sunny in the rich man's world. Well, so far in our study of Ecclesiastes, we've seen the preacher searching for the meaning of life under the sun. Uh, Under the sun meaning as if this life is all there is to go on for us to find any kind of significance and meaning. Is it possible? We're born, we live, we die. Game over. Can we find true meaning and satisfaction as human beings if all we have to go on is this life under the sun? That's the question that's been driving the preacher's study as we've been working through Ecclesiastes. And now he turns to wealth. He turns to worldly riches. And he says, can we find satisfaction and purpose for life in what we own? Are we effectively what we are as we own it? And he begins with this simple but profound observation of how the love of wealth influences a society, how the love of wealth influences a society. Have a look at his introduction in uh, verse 8 of chapter 5, his opening remarks as he starts his study. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. The preacher's first observation is that the love of wealth in a society will often lead to oppression and injustice. Uh, Basically, those in great power are seeking their own interests. They just want to get as rich as they can, whether it be by levying unfair taxes or promoting the taking of bribes that slowly increase. But either way... They seek to squeeze as much money and wealth out of those who are below them. And the officials below them do it to the ones who are below them. Eventually, till you get to the people at the bottom of society's ladder, the poor, those who have no authority or great wealth, and they suffer great injustice. They lose the little they have due to this kind of corruption. 
Uh, not long ago, I received a prayer request from the leader of a refugee centre not far from where we are right now. And he, he had me on the phone and said, Tim, can you pray for our protection? Can you pray for our protection for myself and for the refugees that I'm taking care of here? Because the local authorities are threatening to beat us and imprison us if we don't pay them the little money that we have to live on. That's going on in KL right now. The preacher's world is not that far from our own. But he does have something positive to say about this kind of society. Surprisingly, there is a silver lining to it in verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. For the nation's leader to be rich and wealthy, then the nation that he governs has to be rich and wealthy as well. Uh, In an agricultural society, the kind of uh, society that the preacher was living in, that meant there was an abundance of grain and oil, much livestock, a lot of wealth in those things. And whether you were poor or you were rich, if you lived in that kind of land, at least there would be something available to eat each day. Uh, Better to have that kind of king than the lazy king who doesn't care about the lands that he governs to the point that everyone goes hungry. There is a self-imposed famine. But even so, the preacher makes this starting point. Where you have a society that lives for wealth and worldly riches, don't be surprised at the corruption and the injustice that will soon follow particularly for those who are vulnerable. That's his opening remark. If meaning in life is found in what we own and the wealth that we have, then many are going to suffer. But that is going to move on to his main case. He's going to show us that living for these worldly riches, seeing our worth and our meaning in what we own, is actually a futile, meaningless and stupid thing to do. Just like those officials were doing, that's what they were committed to. Well, now he's going to show them up for the fools that they are. Let me just explain how he structures his argument through the rest of these verses. Uh, If we go to the next slide, uh, we won't treat these verses like A and then B equals C. It doesn't quite work that way in this passage. Uh, What we have is what we call a chiasm. It's an Old Testament literary device. It works a little bit like this. We can think about it like uh, this pyramid here. So the first point that the preacher makes we find at the beginning of our verses and at the end of our verses as well. Okay? So chapter 5 verses 10 to 12 and chapter 6 verses 7 to 9, they're both saying the same point. He makes that point, then he moves on to his next point and we move in one to his second point, 5, 13 to 17, 6, 1 to 6. And then finally, once we've reached the middle of these verses, of this passage, we've got his main conclusion. So rather than working from one end to the other, we're working from both ends into the middle. That's the way he's laid out his argument here. And here's the first step. We're going to look in chapter 5 and chapter 6 for this. Living for wealth. If we're living for wealth, then dissatisfaction is guaranteed. You live for your wealth, you will be dissatisfied. First point. The more you get, the more you want. The more you get, the more you want. Have a look at verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth 
with his income. This also is vanity. I saw an interview once uh, of a rather wealthy financial director who was asked by the person interviewing him, what's your number? What's your number? What the interviewer meant by that is basically, how much do you have to earn and accumulate? How high does your bank account balance have to go before you stop? Before you stop working those long, back-breaking hours, you take a rest and you just enjoy what you have, rather than desperately seeking to get more and more. And the finance director replied, said, what's your number? My number is more. My number is more. For those who put their worth in wealth, the preacher observes, so often, the more we get, the more we're going to want. Don't have to be a wealthy director in finance to, well, experience this issue, this lie. When was the last time we were dissatisfied with what we had? Uh, with our monthly income. We think our lives would be just that much richer if we had that little bit more in the bank each month. I wonder though, did we feel that kind of dissatisfaction the last time we got a promotion? Or the last time we got a raise in our pay? The last time we did get that little bit more? I doubt it. We probably thought, great, I've been promoted, more money. I, I, I can now take care of all of my needs. But as time gets goes on, we get used to nicer things that we can now invest in and then we start to see even nicer things that we still can't afford and so we start to wish we had a bit more money so we could spend a bit more of what we have. We'll look at the other side of the step in chapter 6, verse 7. Again, step 1, we're at the other end of the passage. 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now, as much as I love eating, and you probably tell I I do, I enjoy my food very much, the problem is that I constantly face is that I will be hungry again after eating about half an hour later. So I have to eat again and again and again. Well, friends, if you have a big appetite for wealth, if that's what you're feeding on for life, then just like with your food, prepare to be hungry again and again and again. Eventually, you will, feel up end, you will end up feeling empty and you will want more. And so the preacher asks rhetorically, who is better off? Who is better off in the end? Look in 6 verse 8. He continues, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? The preacher observes that often the poor have an advantage over the rich here. He knows how to conduct his life in a better way than the wealthy man. Why? Well, we have the answer in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, the poor who have little often appreciate the little that they have a lot. Unlike the rich who can suffer from this wandering appetite, who have the potential to be addicted to just the accumulation of more and more and more things. For the rich... And friends, us here tonight, generally speaking, most of us would be considered rich on a world standard. For those who have sizable disposable incomes, 
Well, there is a constant temptation for us to be looking for satisfaction and meaning in the next car, the next holiday, the next house, the next blank, whatever that next is for you. We look to those things for our satisfaction and our worth in life, like the culture around us. But friends, if we put our life's worth in riches, if we buy into that lie, then the more you get, the more you want. You will never be satisfied. It's vanity. It's as useful as chasing and trying to catch the wind. Secondly, the more you get, the more you lose. Strange, but that's the observation he makes. The more you get, the more you lose. Have a look in back in chapter 5 now, verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Basically, the more wealth we receive, the more we get, the more mouths we end up having to feed. A larger house needs a maid. More kids need a nanny. More possessions, we've got to get some really good, tough security. We've got to get that jagger by our front gate to make sure no one steals from us. And then the taxman wants a little bit more from us as our income increases month by month. As the preacher observes, when our goods increase, when our wealth increases, they, others, increase who eat them. I remember as soon as I got my first car, one of the biggest moments of, yes, fine, I've got some wealth, I've got some freedom, I've got a car, I can go where I want to, I can spend more time doing the things I want to, I'm not just so restricted to what the family's doing all the time. And yet, I soon realised that that wealth came with a price attached to it. Oh, it was only a few weeks later that I realised I had become the local taxi service for my sister and her friends. Now, they really enjoyed my newfound wealth, as my fuel bill increased, as that went up, and my own personal time went down, others often benefit far more from our growing wealth than we ever do. The more you get, the more you lose at the hands of others that you need to feed to maintain what you have. Thirdly, the more you get the more you worry. That's the third observation the preacher makes. If, you, if, if your life is about accumulating more and more wealth, then, well, the more you get, prepare to worry all the more. Look in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. See, seeing our wealth grow as the worth in our life leads to a lot of anxiety for so many. Uh, the full stomach of the rich here, it's referring to the overabundance of the possessions that he has, all of his worldly riches. And yet, you see the effect that it has on this rich man? He can't sleep at night. He is full of anxiety and worry. I wonder why? Why, why would you be so full of worry if you've got so much? Because he has so much to lose. Because he is invested in all of this wealth and yet he can lose this wealth if he's not careful. Through people who are scheming, trying to trick him out of his money, robbers who want to just steal from him, break into his grand home. 
You know, robbers, thieves, they choose to steal from banks like the ones outside and jewellery stores for a good reason. It's because there's a lot of wealth over there. Rarely will you hear about an elaborate heist going down at the local hawker store. Shady characters target the rich who have a lot to lose because that's where the money is to be made in that crime. For this rich man, it's as if through accumulating his wealth, he has gone and stuck a massive bullseye on the back of his head. His wealth has turned him into a great target. Unlike the labourer, who, who may not be rich, but he can sleep soundly because he's received his daily bread. Whether it's a small meal or a big meal, that will change with time, but he has little else to lose. He's not invested in wealth because he doesn't have that wealth. So he doesn't have to worry. Live for your wealth. Well, then the preacher says, he's got these three observations to make. The more you get, the more you want. The more you get, the more you'll lose. The more you get, the more you will worry. It's not exactly a stable foundation to build our lives upon, is it? Having made those observations, the preacher's going to give us a couple of case studies, some real-life scenarios, two men who decided that what made life worth living was the money they could make, accumulating great wealth for themselves. And the preacher's going to show us just how much these two men suffered for making money the object of their lives. We're on to the second step now in the pyramid. We're moving one step in, in our verses from each end. The first man, the first evil, wealth does not guarantee security in life. That is the first evil we have to face if we choose to invest our lives in what we own. Wealth does not guarantee security in life. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Here we've got a man, he's a father, who decides to hoard his wealth, keep it all to himself. He's the, the Scrooge of the family. The last one they would look to for any kind of financial support in a crisis or the odd meal out. His wealth is what he cares about chiefly. It makes him feel secure as long as he's got that lump sum in the bank. But one day, he makes a terrible decision. He invests it all into a scheme by which he loses everything. His entire fortune, his life savings, all that hard work, gone in an instant. He goes from being wealthy to dirt poor overnight. Well, we've seen plenty of examples of that in recent history. Here's one of them. That screen. Here's one of them. Uh, you might not be able to make it out so clearly. This is depicting the effect of the Wall Street uh, stock market crash back in 1929. You have a wealthy businessman and he's standing next to his incredibly luxurious car. And he's got the sign that he's written there. And I'll just tell you what the words say. Basically, this car for $100 cash must have food, lost all my money on the stock market. Lost all my money on the stock market. He went from being wealthy to poor 
in a matter of days. To the point that now he is having to sell one of his most prized possessions just so that he can get by. More recently, remember 2008, uh, another financial crisis which left many unemployed, some even homeless. And for those bankers, I imagine the week before, they felt very secure and comfortable in their offices. They thought, my, my investments are fine, they're there, they're in the bank. I'm okay, I'm out of harm's way. And yet in a matter of days, they experienced destitution. Just like the owner of these riches who hoards them himself, builds his life upon them, and then just loses them all in one bad venture. The preacher is helping us to see the transient nature of the wealth of our world. Easy come, but easy go. Not something stable to build our lives upon, certainly not something we should draw meaning from. But then the preacher reminds us that in a sense, we will all lose our wealth, whatever that wealth might be, at the end of the day. See how he continues in verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. And that's the stark and painful reality, isn't it? We leave this world and this life with exactly as much as we brought into it. Zero. In terms of our worldly riches. Absolutely nothing. And yet there were people in the preacher's day that didn't accept that. There were Egyptians just down the road from him who were burying uh, the rich, the wealthy, the royal, the famous uh, with as much of their wealth as possible in their tombs. Because they believed, no, you can take it with you when you die. So you took your gold, you took your chariots, you took your wives, even if they happened to be alive at the time, along with your slaves, and they all went into the tomb with your body believing I can take them into the afterlife with me. And we don't even have to go as far back as the ancient Egyptians to see that kind of folly. Robert Perry of New York, uh, they ran a little article of him. This is uh, back in the New York Times in 1885. Uh, it was a bit of a story because he had to be taken out of his grave in the middle of one of the cemeteries in New York. They uh, unearthed his coffin because his family could not find the fortune that he had been amassing for himself for all of his life. He had been hoarding it and hoarding it and hoarding it. He had suddenly died. They had gone into his house. They tried to find it. It's nowhere to be found. So they think, well, he couldn't have possibly... And they bring him up. They open up his coffin. He's buried in the jacket that he died in. And in the inside sleeve pocket, they find the equivalent of $60,000 US in cash and titles and deeds, all of his worldly wealth in the clothes that he was buried in. Robert Perry loved his wealth. He hoarded it and he kept it so close to him, he took it to his grave. And that's exactly where it stayed. Didn't go anywhere after that until his family, for whatever reasons, decided to dig him up just so that they could get to his wealth instead. So the preacher says to us, verse 16, this also is a grievous, that is a sickening evil, a sickening reality for those who want to build their life on wealth. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? 
all that hard work, all that earthly toil to amass so much wealth, only to lose it all the day you die. We don't even know what day that is for us. Nothing to show for it on that day, other than maybe a grand tombstone that others will appreciate, not us. One of the wealthiest Americans to have uh, ever lived was Malcolm Forbes. He started the magazine. You can still get in the news agents today, Forbes magazine, uh, for business and finance. Uh, and each year, uh, they have a bit of fun publishing the annual rich list. Basically, it gives you the table of the richest people in the world according to how much they have, from first down to, I don't know, I think 100 or 500. And when Malcolm was asked by a reporter about his view on the meaning of life, what what makes life worth living for you, what brings you significance, Malcolm said, he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's that's where we draw meaning from our lives, in, in the things that we have. That's what living life is about, accumulating wealth. Well, the message of Ecclesiastes is, he who dies with the most toys still dies. He who dies of the most toys still dies. We can lose all our wealth in a single night in one foolish decision. Or we will all lose all our wealth, whatever that might be, on the day we die anyway. How meaningless to derive our worth and ultimate satisfaction to see our meaning in the things that we own of this world that are fading away, that we cannot keep well, that's the first evil. Wealth does not guarantee security in your life. Second one, wealth does not guarantee joy in life. Wealth doesn't guarantee joy in life. The other side of step two in chapter six, starting from verse one. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gave wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Here we have a man who is wealthier than the first. The first one had one son. This man is said to be father of a hundred children. The first man lived a relatively short life, but this man lives many years, a full life. And yet, he cannot enjoy anything of what he possesses. The many children, the great possessions, and the many years that he would have normally had to enjoy them, are just a source of anguish for him. It's just tragic. God doesn't grant him the ability to enjoy these many blessings he's been granted. The rich man who has such incredible wealth cannot enjoy it. Maybe he might be suffering from the full stomach of the rich that we just saw a minute ago. He can't stop worrying about the possibility of losing his wealth because he's so invested in it. And so others enjoy his wealth far more than him. Maybe his house servants, other strangers in his life, false friends who only want to know him for the parties, for the money, for the the luxurious things they can experience through his wealth and leeching on him. But they have no genuine love for him. 
They're not true friends. Did you notice in verse 3? He has no burial. This wealthy rich man, known many people, had a hundred children, lived many years. He has no burial. No one is there for him on his deathbed. No one takes care of his funeral. His life and even his death are ultimately one of loneliness and misery. To the point that the preacher can give us this disturbing comparison. I'm sure you noticed it. If we start halfway through verse 3, I say that a stillborn child is better off. Stillborn child, better off than this guy. If a person has had every good thing of this world and yet cannot enjoy any of it properly, then a stillborn child that never breathed, never saw the sun, is better off than he. Because it finds a rest that the rich fool, who can find no enjoyment in all that he does, well, can't find. We're not talking about any kind of rest in death or after death here. Uh, Life after death isn't in view at all in the whole of Ecclesiastes. We're talking about life under the sun, as though there is nothing after death. No, the rest that the stillborn child experiences, as opposed to the rich man here, is one of ignorance. In verse 4, it it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. It has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. It's a rest that comes from failing to experience this life. The stillborn child has rest because he doesn't experience the pain and the sorrow of the rich fool who has so long to live and has so much and yet cannot enjoy any of it. To the point that the preacher says, verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Even this guy lives two thousand years and has everything he could possibly desire. He can still go to the grave a broken, joyless man. One has suffered far more than the other. The rich man not the stillborn child. It's such a foreign concept to our materialistic culture. People would just laugh at us when we share that truth with them. To live long and live rich, to have every one of your desires met, you can somehow be worse off than someone who never lived? But that's what the preacher tells us. If we build our lives and see our significance, ultimately, in the things that we own, Here are the two great evils we've got to face up to if we do that, if we build our lives on wealth. They will fail to be our security in life and death. They will fail to bring us joy that we long for, no matter how long we live, no matter how much we have. And we say together as a church, yes, yes, Tim. We we know as Christians that we, we don't find our ultimate security in money. We don't find our lasting joy in the possessions of this world. We know that. But do we? And if we do know that, then do we live like it day by day? In a way that reflects that we are not overly invested in the passing things of this world, in the worldly wealth that we possess. We want to say yes, I want to say yes from my heart, and yet so often the attitudes of our hearts betray how we really feel toward the things that we have toward our money. 
I'm sure most of us heard that Prince William and his wife Kate were in Malaysia last week. I had the privilege of meeting them briefly at an afternoon tea. And after that lovely function, as I was leaving, uh, I was just going outside from the residence where, where that had taken place, and I see on the curb opposite this row of incredibly luxurious cars pulled up alongside. I'm talking about really, really nice cars. We're not talking about like Camrys here. We're talking about BMWs, Maseratis, Mercedes, Lexus, Rolls-Royce, Jaguars, and the list just went on and on and on. And as the function ended, each chauffeur, not the owner, but each chauffeur pulled up to the entrance one by one to pick up the owner of these incredible vehicles who would then drive them away in the lap of luxury. And for a moment, in that brief moment, as I saw before my eyes this, this happening, each wealthy person being picked up in this incredible way, I felt embarrassed and I felt unworthy in terms of the company I was keeping in that afternoon. Because I knew that I would be walking down the road, I wouldn't be driven down the road by anyone, I'd be going round the corner, round the back, to pick up my proton persona and I'd be driving myself back to church. In my heart, in that moment, as I stood on that curb, I wished, I longed for my circumstances to be different. That I could have been counted equal amongst those others who had that kind of wealth. I wanted to have my chauffeur come down in my personal 750 series BMW in jet black with chrome rims and pick me up from the party and drive me back to church. Yeah, I thought about it for a bit. But, friends, we mustn't laugh too much. It's tragic, actually. Friends, as I longed for those things, and as I felt embarrassed and unworthy before the wealthy people I'd met that day because I didn't have those things, I was buying into the horrible lie that the preacher here is exposing. That worldly wealth can bring meaning and worth and status to us intrinsically as human beings and to our lives. That wealth is what really matters at the end of the day. You know you've got a healthy life if you're rich. It's a rich man's world. And every time we look at what our next door neighbour or our college friend has, and we wish we had what they had, or we wish we had something better than they had. Every time we covet something that we don't own, we chase after it. Every time we feel dissatisfied with what we have received, with our lot in life, we buy into that lie as well. That riches are what count at the end of the day. That that is what makes life worth living for. That we are what we own. So how should we relate to the wealth that we have in life? As we've been working through, we we can uh, fall into the trap of thinking, well, okay, I mustn't be wealthy then. You know, the wealth is the issue. No, it's not the issue. The wealth is not the issue. It's the attitudes of our heart toward our wealth. What place does that wealth play in our lives each day? How rooted are we to it? So how should we relate to the wealth that we do have 
here in Malaysia. Well, here's the preacher's conclusion. We're now at the top of the pyramid. We're in the middle of the verses. Living with our wealth. Living with our wealth. God's gifts to accept and enjoy. God's gifts to accept and enjoy. Chapter 5. Let's read verses 18 to 20 again. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You notice how many times God is mentioned in this short number of verses? Four times in three verses. God is mentioned here more than any other point in the whole book. And he is repeatedly described as the giver. He is the giver of life itself. He is the giver of all wealth, possessions and honour. The lot that we receive from the work that we do is ultimately a gift from him as our creator and Lord. Because for the preacher, God's role as the creator and Lord and provider of everything that we have is absolutely crucial if we are to relate to our wealth in the right way. Verse 19, that's his conclusion. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. In other words, what you currently have, what you have moment by moment, even as it changes, when you have little, when you have much, accept it and enjoy it. That's the preacher's conclusion. Accept and enjoy. Whether you have nasi lemak or lobster for dinner, whether you have a Mercedes or a motorbike to get you around, whether you go to Port Dixon or to Portugal for your family holidays, just accept that wealth that God has allotted to you at this time and enjoy it. Because all these things will come and go and they are momentary. We cannot draw meaning and ultimate satisfaction from the things that we happen to own at any given moment. So don't build your life, your self-esteem, your very worth as a person into the things that you have. Just accept it and enjoy it for what it is. But friends, the problem is that we often fail to do that. The only way we can really do that from the heart is by loving the one who grants us all of these possessions above the gifts themselves. You know, in our sin, what we do, we won't honour God as our Lord and provider. We instead take the gifts of his creation and we worship them. We look for security and comfort and meaning in what we own rather than the God who provides them, who created us to enjoy him and honour him above all. You see, that's why God ultimately is the only one who can actually grant us the power to enjoy the wealth that he does bestow on us. Because 
apart from his loving mercy, we will worship our wealth rather than him, to our own sorrow, to our own destruction. And yet, as Christians, we rejoice because we know that God has worked to save us from that miserable existence of being a slave to our things, living for our things. And he's done that ultimately through his Son, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God who humbled himself and became like us, who lived in fairness an impoverished existence, and yet more importantly, he lived the life we failed to live in relation to earthly riches. He honoured his Father far above the things of this world. Even when he was tempted, he was put under the temptation of being offered all the kingdoms of this world. Instead, he honoured his Father in heaven. And ultimately, he does that by going to the cross so that we might be forgiven the idolatry of replacing God with things and so rebelling against him. So that we might be reconciled to the God who provides for our needs and so that we might find our rest in him as the giver rather than the gifts. Through faith in Jesus, we are now adopted as his own beloved children. And as he provides for our needs now, we look forward to something far greater the eternal inheritance we have received in his Son. Eternal life in his kingdom. We look forward to that true wealth that will never fade away, kept in heaven for us. And because we're living for that kingdom now, as his people, we don't draw our meaning or our significance or our ultimate satisfaction. We don't base our contentment in life in the things that we have in this life. Jesus liberates us from that kind of slavery. Our contentment now rests in what we have received in him. Whether we are poor or rich, whether we are hungry or full, the riches that we have received in Christ never change. And those are the things we are to be living for. And yet we still have a choice in this life. We will die to our love and dependence on worldly wealth only as we grow in our love for Christ. As we rejoice all the more in him. And so use our wealth to honour him and glorify his name rather than serve our own selfish needs. Rather than seeking satisfaction according to our own plans. What does it mean to use your wealth the godly way? Here are some of the priorities that Christ has for us. Providing for our families faithfully. Providing for others where we can in generosity. Serving his gospel of eternal value with what we have and so storing up treasure for ourselves that will last. Kept in heaven. It doesn't just have to be with money, but it is important we are serving the gospel as partners with our finance. Opening up our home for a Bible study is one way to serve the gospel with our possessions. Uh, using our car to give a lift to a friend bring them to church because they don't have any other means of transport. There are many ways in which we can use what God has blessed us with to glorify him now that we are living for Christ rather than those things. But friends, please recognize as we close, if you have been given much, if you are wealthy, 
and many of us are, it's not just a blessing. It may be one of the greatest trials you will ever face as a Christian. Remember our New Testament reading in 1 Timothy 6, just up on the screen, a portion of it. Let me just read for you what Paul writes concerning the rich in this age and how they are to relate to the wealth that God has bestowed on them for his glory. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Don't love the the wealth of this world above the God who provides it, because one day it will all fade away. It is ultimately meaningless. The truly rich, well, they are the ones who will be found faithful in Christ on that final day, having honoured him with what he has entrusted to them. Well, may we meet be those people as we continue to serve him this week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It reveals the true desires and inclinations of our hearts, especially the ways in which we are guilty of idolizing wealth and living for and finding our meaning and satisfaction in that transient and ultimately meaningless thing rather than in you who provides it for us for our enjoyment, and in order that we might serve you faithfully. Lord, forgive us for that idolatry. Focus the eyes of our hearts on Christ and the immeasurable riches that you have now granted to us by your grace through faith in him. Lord, we count Christ as the one great worth that we have in this life. And so be content Whatever we have, whether we are poor or rich, whether we are hungry or full, help us to set our eyes and our hearts on him and to be found faithful in him on that final day, that we would be brought into that kingdom where the riches will never fade. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.